Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue episode number 112. This interview is with Roy Vella, a fellow professional speaker, digital expert and consultant who's particularly focused on the exciting mobile space. With the burgeoning attention to the mobile world, we talk in this interview about the state of mobile, how companies should be approaching the mobile challenge and some great tips for teams looking at creating mobile-oriented initiatives. Plus, we hear about Roy's favorite mobile apps and sites, a man in the know. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Mintadal. Today I am in my flat and I were two uh, Americans in London. Someone I met at the e-consultancy Future of Digital Marketing this year. And so Roy, um, you are a specialist in mobile. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Sure. Um, my name is Roy Vela. I live in the convergence of mobile, e-commerce, and financial services. Um, the way I got there was uh, originally with PayPal. So PayPal sent me over to London to launch PayPal Mobile mm-hmm. back in the day, back in pre-iPhone days, <laughs> 2006. Um, mindset, I, I'd say if I had to pick a word, I'd probably say curiosity. I have sort of an insatiable curiosity about most things. And uh and mobile so fundamentally changing the world that um, there's just a lot to be curious about uh, because it's touching everything in really, really interesting ways. Yeah, well, being curious today is, I think, is, is a fundamental mindset need. The challenge, of course, is finding the time to have that serendipity, go out there and, yeah, yeah. and find stuff. So um, that's all right. We're talking. We're going to talk a lot about mobile, Roy. And the first question is, well, what do you consider mobile? Yeah, I, I, I think. There's a misperception about mobile uh, from my perspective. A lot of people think about it as devices, um, and they think about it as screen size and user interfaces on a device. Uh, And for me, there's just a much more fundamental trend going on, um, which is about the pervasiveness of computing platforms. And um, uh, there's a really interesting slide from... um, Uh, Mary Meeker Mm -hmm. at KPCB, and uh, it's really about the last 60 years, starting with mainframes, going to uh, microcomputers and then personal computers, and then PCs that we have at home into into the mobile platform, laptops, and then into the handset. And really, that whole trend is just about, uh, you know, increased speed, increased lowering the cost of memory, etc. One way to look at that graph for me is the pervasiveness of the network. So the network started with educational institutions, then it went to commercial institutions and political institutions, and then it went in the army. In the arm, exactly. And then into your home, and then into your pocket, right? And, and that's the trend. Mobile, for me, is, is the uh, most recent node that is about saturation of IP, of internet protocol. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that... Um, it's a much it's a much different thing to think about than most people do, which is you know kind of apps and platforms and all this kind of thing. Really, what it is, it's about connectivity, and we have entered a phase where 
uh, I like to use the term hyperconnectivity. And hyperconnectivity is the fact that everything is connected to everything else. It used to be every computer was connected to everything else. Now it's every person is con connected to every other person. Mm -hmm. And as you've heard and most people know, the Internet of Things is sort of the final phase of that where literally everything will be connected mm -hmm. to everything else. There will be a chip that uh, on Internet, on IP, uh, will be connected to everything else. And that fundamentally changes the game uh, the way I perceive it, if you have a, uh, a, a visual in your head, would be a mesh. You know, we, have a, we now have a mesh that will cover everything. It's, it sort of sounds like um, astrophysics, the, you know, the Einsteinian mesh. It's, yeah, I mean, it is. It's funny you should say that because I'm, I'm a bit of a physicist in terms of my interests. But yes, it is this idea that there is a uniform connectivity across the planet. And you will, I mean... Uh, you, you know, you and I are a bit old fogey, but our kids and their kids expect connectivity 24-7. There's no – the idea that you would be disconnected, uh, you know, without your intention would be completely foreign. That, that won't exist anymore. All right. So I just want to start off with this notion of mobile. So I understand this notion of the mesh and the hyperconnectivity. But there's also a confusion uh, as in what is a mobile. When we talk about – Google said in November this year – that there will be more connections to the internet via mobile. What, are, what exactly are we talking about when we say mobile? Yeah, yeah I mean, and that's a perfect example. So, so uh, initially, the, the thing that made a mobile mobile versus your laptop or versus something else was that it went through a SIM card and it went to a GSM network. Uh, and that was what distinguished it. Everything that wasn't mobile was Wi-Fi or wired, right? So you were either wired in your home or Wi-Fi. And then as soon as you stepped out of that range and entered the GSM range of telecommunications, that was, quote, mobile. Um, that's going to start to become a legacy of history because people don't think about it anymore. Whether I'm connected over Wi-Fi or a 4G or a 3G or whatever, GSM, 5G, whatever it is, that's going to start to become quite moot. People mm -hmm. don't really care. Uh, and actually, frankly, a lot of people don't understand. Like people, You talk about the difference between an SMS text message and an iMessage, and 90% of people don't understand that an iMessage is data running over IP, which requires a data connection, and SMS is a legacy system that runs through the GSM telecom right. telecommunications mm -hmm. network. These are things that you and I get, but man on the street yeah. doesn't know nor mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so this whole thing of where mobile ends and sort of other connectivity begins, it's fundamentally becoming less and less important over time. I mean, it's just kind of a technical dif right. difficulty that no one else really cares about. All right, but so <clears throat> when we talk with companies, as you and I are doing, in, a challenge, in this digital space, and we, then we start focusing on mobile mm – -hmm. The benefit of saying, well, we're talking about tablets, phablets, and, and telephones, mm -hmm. is that it makes it concrete. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge, when you talk about your first concept of this sort of hyperconnectivity in the mesh, is that, that that feels like we're talking about oxygen in the air, and how do I grab onto it? Yeah. How, do you, how do you confront that thought when you're talking with companies? Yeah. I, I mean, I, there's no doubt. I don't want to give the impression that form factor doesn't matter. Form factor matters, okay? I mean, it's important to uh, understand if the user is on a handset that has a one size screen versus another size screen versus a tablet versus a computer versus a projection. I mean, you know, it, that matters. Um, it, it, what's different is that um, you, how do I put this? I think the best way to think about it is use cases versus hardware. Hardware is the manifestation of the use case. What's more important is what is the user trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. So are they trying to accomplish speed 
uh, are there, is it depth of insight? Is it richness? Like, what, what, what is the objective of the user at the time of the, of the use case that they're, that they're doing something with the company? And I t- I'll tell this to all my clients. Like, if you're ignoring the situation, if, you do, if you're ignoring situational knowledge, so is this person walking, driving, sitting still? Are they connected over a high-speed connection or a slow-speed connection? Like, it's the situation that matters. Mm-hmm. Hardware is a part of that situation, no doubt about it, mm-hmm. but it's only a small part of the situation. Mm-hmm. Really, it's about achieving their objective, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is part of the transition we're in right now, moving from, quote, websites, which are... I mean, it's all in the name, right? It is a place that you go, you know, to research something, right. to learn something, to do something versus where we are where now, where the, where the device comes to me, the use case comes to me. My most useful tools on my, on my mobile device, on my iPhone, notify me when I need to know something. They say, you are here and so you should be doing this or, you, or it is this time of day and you're here and so this thing should happen. Um, it, it's a, it's a bi-directional as opposed to unidirectional. I don't right. go to it. It comes to me and both and, and vice versa. All right. So a lot of these companies will tend to, and they, to make it simpler, we'll talk about, you know, the mobile device mm-hmm. and the, the challenge of looking at these use cases is that you end up with a lot of them. You know, some banks that I, you and I work with mm-hmm. have, you know, mil, many millions of clients sure. that have potentially many millions of use cases sure. And so on the one hand, the device is a limiting factor as far as the customer is concerned because if they don't have the device, then they ain't going to be there. If they don't have a connected fridge, then it's not going to work, whatever. So how do you approach this sort of multifarious, huge number of use cases out there to come up with a strategy? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's about prioritization, right? Like anything else you do in business, it's what are our key priorities? What are our objectives that we're trying to achieve? And, and what, you know, how do those objectives manifest themselves? Um, you obviously aren't going to fill every use case and corner case because it's not worth it. It's not, it doesn't make sense economically or commercially sure. to do that. Um, however, if you're not paying attention to the majority of the, so if you find out that the vast majority of your touch points are checking an account balance and that's it, and then it drops off a cliff to the next thing, which is sending a payment or whatever. Well, let's focus on checking an account balance and making that as easy as possible versus right. anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you also, uh, speaking of banks, so, you know, Lakasha has over 70 different apps in their own app store. Okay. And now that is an appreciation, a deep appreciation of use cases. Mm-hmm. Like why they could have done one app and put, 70 types of functionality in one app and made it completely unusable to anyone. Mm. Instead, they said, you know what? This is different enough activity. We're going to do a different app. Mm-hmm. 70 times so far or 72, mm-hmm. 74, I can't keep count anymore, mm-hmm. in their own app store. You can install those apps as you choose. They have a container app that could hold all the apps in it. So you could have one Lakasha icon mm-hmm. and all the apps can be inside it. Mm-hmm. Or you can install them separately. Some people have... 10 Lakasha apps in their Lakasha folder on their, on their iPhone or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two of them are installed separately because one of them is check account balance and one of them is send payment and they use those all the time. And the other 10 they use infrequently, but they want to have access to them. Yeah. 
So then how do they do the marketing of these? I mean, because that ends up being the big problem of, of a lot of times you make an app, you make a site, by the way, mm-hmm. or you have the Facebook page or whatever, of course, and yeah. the findability for the person who actually would be using yeah. it. I, you know, honestly, I think you hit on the, uh, one of the key challenges of the world ahead. Um, saturation uh, of, of the mesh, uh, saturation of connectivity, uh, causes a findability problem. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about this recently, that the App Store, uh, whether Apple's or Google Play, uh, are completely unnavigable, you know, and that the vast majority of apps are never downloaded. Never. <laughs> Not once. You know, and then the second tier is they're downloaded and never opened. <laughs> and then the third tier is they're open once mm-hmm. and that's it and and literally these numbers are massive i mean the 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 number of those three tiers of mm-hmm. never downloaded downloaded and never opened o- downloaded and opened once are, are staggering you know and and part of that problem is findability and usability and an app that gets opened once and never again failed the usability challenge the person who opened it couldn't understand immediately how this was going to add value to their lives and that was it the app got deleted or just ignored wow so, Roy, talking about usability, mm. so you have your 70 apps or, or one with 70, what sort of, how do you navigate creating good user experience? Because that's uh, one of your, you know, sure, 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 bugbears sure. is yeah, making yeah, yeah. the great customer experience. Yeah. So how do you, when you have so many options, so many devices, where, where do you start with in trying to make for a good usability? Yeah, for, for me, um, I think uh, Johnny Ives said it best. It's it's all about simplicity. It's it's uh, and, and that is not a quote. That's an approximation of his ethos, which is uh, meticulously simple, uh, making things intuitive and simple to the extent that you don't need to explain. You know, uh, when I when I uh, speak to audiences, I often th- sh- throw an image of the Sony remote up and the Apple remote up next to each other. You know, Sony remote. God forbid you lose your manual. Like you need your manual to use the Sony remote because who knows what a red and green and blue button is meant to do. Uh, the Apple remote doesn't have a manual. In fact, most Apple gear doesn't have any sort of manual. It, it freaked right. my mom out when her iPad didn't have a manual because you know my, my mother read her manual to her car front to back before she put it the key in the ignition. Mm-hmm. You know she wants to know right. all the details first. Yeah. And I, I had to explain to her, this is a new world. Mm-hmm. Turn it on, mm-hmm. start to Go play with it. With it. Yeah. And, and it is about the intuitive nature mm-hmm. based on simplicity. And if, if, if the app doesn't have that inherent simplicity, it will fail. I can tell you right now, if, if it's not self-explanatory, uh, you have a real problem in the current world. Because also what's happened because of saturation and all of this is attention spans have gone down right. dramatically. Mm-hmm. People want to know immediately how it should work. Mm-hmm. If it's not intuitive, your design, and back to your use case question, the design has to be completely intuitive based on simplicity. Anything that's extraneous or extra should be later in the app. So the basic fundamental functionality should be present and obvious when I open it. And then maybe there's a little gear wheel that then shows me later on other things that I can do with it. Layer in other stuff. Exactly. So, all right, when we are talking with, um, let's, I want to, you'll be kind to your mom, but. Um, <laughs> to a lot of board groups that might have that similar uh, experience or background, you know, heavy engineers, mm-hmm. extremely educated people yeah. that are used to reading manuals before they go in, uh, especially in the banking environment where there's so much technology involved. How, how does a, a board member, 
start understanding what kind of decisions need to be taken and resources need to be invested mm. in order to create that kind of user experience? Yeah, it is a difficult question. I mean, you, you, to sum up your question, it's you know, old dogs and new tricks. Like, how do you how do you deal with that challenge? The reality is, uh, I think the best leaders, the best senior leaders, recognize their limitations in that regard. Like, it's not going to be the way it was in the past. Um, the you know, you need to find someone under twenty five who has was born into a fully immersed world. Like they they've always had the internet. That that connectivity is an inherent part of their existence. Um, you know, they're the ones who can explain to you what design and simplicity really means and how you how you do things intuitively uh, in that approach. I mean, that's the, that's the key difference. I I, I don't know that. Um, you know, an existing board member who's uh, who's quite a bit older and didn't grow up in that world and is used to manuals is going to be capable of doing it. The leadership is about finding the people who are capable and making sure that everyone who works for you is smarter than you in their vertical. <laughs> what they're meant to be doing, right. they got to be better at than you are. And, and there you bring out the point of the need to uh, not only recruit but identify the talent Exactly. And then be able to keep them because you know that twenty-five-year-old who looks at the looks up to the guy with the you know typically a guy with a, this, the the tie still wearing and looking with a paper agenda says, "Hmm, I'm not sure I want to stick around in that company for very long." Yeah, yeah, I, yeah the reality is to to make it appealing. Uh, a lot of people don't want to hear this, but I think play is very important. Uh, play as a as a means of learning, as a means of doing, uh, is not inherently commercial or industrial. But it is essential moving forward that the, the idea that I told my mom, you just have to open it and play with it, that's where we're going. That's right. how most things are going to be learned and understood. And if you can't just open it and play with it without, without someone teaching you, you're going to have real challenges in, in the world moving forward. That's not – the environment that, that the under-25 set lives in is an open and play with environment where they learn intuitively as they go along. They, they're not, they don't want to sit down for a lesson, read a manual, et cetera, in terms of understanding how to use your offering to them. Right. Well, so now I want to switch because I love the fact that you're talking about play. Uh, and I'm just going to put play and banking together as two words. Right. Because <laughs> um, right. that could seem like a, a, a stretch, so the, the, what I'm looking at is how do you uh, create that environment and, and create that kind of an app? And I'm talking about business processes within a company in order for that play to be intuitive, simple sure. for the consumer. Yeah, the end, end user. yeah. It, there's no doubt psychologically it's a challenge inside banks when you put play and banking together as words, right? But I, I, I'd go back to uh, Brett King, a good friend and one of my favorite speakers, who said, you know, banking is no longer someplace you go. A bank is no longer someplace you go. It's something you do. Uh, it's an activity. And, and I think bankers need to redefine how they are and what they are to their, indiv- to their clients in terms of activity as opposed to security. Mm-hmm. Um, security is a fundamental, right? The back end of banking, the infrastructure of banking mm-hmm. has to work. It has to be five nines or more. When I send a payment, it can't fail. If I send an email and it fails, no big deal. If I'm on a call and it fails, no big deal. But if I send a payment, it's got to go through and it's got to go through correctly. Mm-hmm. So th- there's, the, there's two layers of banking. The back end infrastructure rock solid can fail front end has a lot more flexibility than mm-hmm. even bankers are want to you know talk, talk about right. cool. um i mean you know i think banks of the old 
were about vaults and safe deposit boxes and securing physical things. The reality is now uh, the stat economists estimate that 8% of total value transacted on the planet is physical cash. Eight. So 92% of value transactions, not volume, so volume, there's a lot of little cash going around, but just value moving around, 92% is bits moving from account to account. And there's bits in this account that move into bits in that account. There's no physical cash Mm. moving around. Um, That's the world that banks have to embrace. They have to get away from sort of cash and gold and bars and vaults. Yeah, yeah. Well, the back end... A bank is a digital business, is my point, in short. At the end of the day, what banks do is secure and transfer bits. They they are fundamental and have been for a long time. They have fundamentally digital businesses, right? They're represented at the end by a Visa card or a debit card or or MasterCard, whatever, or an NFC chip, chip, whatever those end nodes are, you know. And then and then money transfers digitally. There's there's a lot more digital security that's required of a bank than physical security these days. Is there still cash? Yes, but but much less important than it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Love the, where we're going with that, but I need to circle back practical matters mm. on a, a notion of the, the mobile. And where I'm, let's you know, sort of forget the huger uh, other implications and just focus in on the mobile experience and the mobile or surf, sure. as we call it. So today, when we look at the mobile, uh, the, there's a lot of stuff out there that says that there's not many mobile-friendly, mobile, maybe even mobile-optimized sites. Mm-hmm. How do you characterize the state of mobile-friendly sites? Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, this is, uh, I, I call that growing pains. This is a transition period that we're in where people have this mindset of here is our website and people come and visit me at my, at my website. Like it's a very physical description of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus the, what's what's really happening in the mobile world, which is people have a use case, they have an objective, they have some problem they're trying to solve, mm-hmm. and they've come to your site or accessed your app to try and solve that problem. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very uh, the, you're right. There's a ton of sites out there who still live in a world. And by the way, a mobile website. Uh, or, or a regular website on the web is simply a digitization of their store often mm-hmm. enough, right? So you've mm-hmm. got a merchant physical location which turned into a digital location which turned into a mobile location. Mm-hmm. That, that's all uh, transition. That's all legacy manifestation. You know, people do what they know, right? So in a okay. store, when, when you went to the first Merchant websites, they felt and looked a lot like the store, right. the shelves and, you know, the whole mm-hmm. feeling of it. Um, the ones who are leading the way are people who never had that legacy. So Amazon is a terrific example of that. Amazon uses data to a fantastic extent. And everyone who uses Amazon knows that. Like, not only was, uh, not only about the item, do I have everything I could possibly want to know, including live reviews from other people, but I have people who saw this also looked at that and people who saw this also bought that or ended up buying this, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, way more data, way more accessibility of data, way, way much of, uh, way more of a digital approach to the world than a physical approach to Mm -hmm. the world. Um, this mobile optimization of sites, I think, will go away, and the sites will be very different. So when I go to the web, when I go to the store versus the website versus the mobile site, 
there'll be three different experiences. There'll be a unifying theme, there'll be a simplicity, etc., but there'll be a rarefication. It will get easier and simpler to do the most important things. So people will say, when people come to my store, they're browsing and they want to talk to someone. When they go to my mobile website, they're searching and they want more depth of information. When they're on, when they're on my mobile site, they're probably going to want XYZ. The top three things people come to me for are this. My app is going to call those things out, you know, mm-hmm. um, make and it make it obvious. Uh, it's not about sque- It's not about shoehorning your physical store mm-hmm. into a into a website and then shoehorning your website mm-hmm. into a mobile device, you know, which is tends to be where we are today. I mean, people are still trying to work that through. All right. So, Roy, that makes me think that I mean, because when we look at, I mean, we look at these sites and and so so many times the mobile version is is just a a shoehorn of the yeah. of the the desktop version. Yeah. Apple, do you you know the fact that they don't have a mobile optimized site, which is a pinch and expand mm-hmm. um, version? I've, I've constantly looked at that and said, "What is yeah. going on?" Yeah. But actually, I'm just wondering if it's not that they have gotten the next step, which is I don't need a mobile site in the interim. Let's just go with an iTunes app. Let's just go with the use cases that are out there. Do you? Do you think that they're that smart, or is that what, what on earth would inspire them not to have a good mobile site? Yeah, I, I do think that they're probably breaking down use cases, so they're expecting you to use the iTunes app as opposed to going to the iTunes desktop site. They're probably expecting you to use the App Store or the Apple Store app as opposed to going to the site. And I think they often redirect you, like you get that you get that notification, open the app or download the app as opposed to being on the site that you're on. You know, and they and they're not optimizing probably to do that. I, the other reality is I think the uh, – I mentioned Johnny already. I think Johnny has had a tremendous impact that started with hardware. Right? So he was a hardware designer and did you know the Air and the iPhone and all of that stuff. And now he's taken on the OS, uh, which is now under his rubric and coming, coming next. Uh, maybe the site's the last to go in terms of the ethos of meticulous simplicity and making things intuitive and easy to use there. I mean he – his influence at Apple uh, – I mean – People might disagree with me, but I would say it's almost greater than Steve Jobs. I mean, you know, Steve was a great evangelist and a marketer and a front-end guy, but on the back-end delivery of phenomenal design and products, it's Johnny. Johnny and his team. I mean, Johnny's very good at inspiring a team to deliver above and beyond. Um, so I think we, I think that will probably change over time as well. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see it. All right, so um, lo- the last question uh, for you, Roy, is with regard to who's doing it well mm. in, in this mobile world. And maybe you have a few sites or uh, mobile activities, applications, whatever we want to call it, that uh, you say, well, this is cool, and, and just you know, we'll send people in the show notes to it. And then specifically within banking, mm. who do you think gets it best? Sure, sure. Uh, so your last question first, I think banking, uh, is going to the experimenters and, uh, that's the world we live in now. The people who are willing to play an experiment are going to be leading the way. So in the UK, that would clearly be Barclays. They are, uh, willing to try and experiment and, uh, you know, put out, ping it. And, you know, I think they developed that in three or four months. Uh, there's an entrepreneurial, agile spirit, very entrepreneurial, very agile, willing to fail, ask forgiveness, not permission, Try it, get it done, and, and play. I mean, literally having an ethos of like, well, play and we'll see what happens. Um, you know, my, my, my approach there is it's okay to break the rules, just not the law. Like, obey the law, but if you want to break the rules a little bit and ask forgiveness later, fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Barclays has been pretty good about getting around their bureaucracy and just getting things done. And I mean, you know, the ping it model 
there's no commercial model really that makes a lot of sense for it right now. They're mm-hmm. giving away payments, and the Barclay card people are like, "What are you doing? <laughs> like that's our business. Don't right. do that." Um, but I, I appreciate the ethos of being able yeah. to do that, you know. And uh, I think that's the same in a lot of other markets as well. So as I said, Lakasha before, like the they they are very. Uh, experimental. They have a ton of different apps. A- apps come and go. Some that they put out don't really work. They take them away. They add others. You know, it's that experimental mindset that makes a huge difference um, in the states. Probably B of A or Wells Fargo. I'm not uh, living in the UK now for the last eight years. I'm not as familiar with what's going on, but they, they, I'm, I have the impression that both of them are doing pretty well. That's cool. um, on the other question, in terms of apps, it, it's. Uh, I think what we're going to find is that people have very personal sets of apps and mobile sites that work for them and that make sense for them. And it's, it's solving problems for you uh, that you know, other people may or may not have. Um, so, for instance, I'm a huge fan of CityMapper. I think CityMapper is a fantastic app. It started with London and then it added New York and now they've got uh, over half a dozen cities. Uh, and I just recently saw an analysis of CityMapper versus Google Maps and you know Google Maps is great, but what CityMapper does is it looks at the use case. What am I trying to achieve with CityMapper? And it presents that information very intuitively, very quickly, right up front. Google Maps, if I have to get the same information, I have to dig a few layers. I have to. It's there somewhere, but I've got a. It's it's not as intuitive. It's not as simplistic. And so CityMapper is a way better map to navigate urban areas than Google Maps is. That's funny. My last, uh, the last podcast I did with Mike Mehamoff, uh, an Aussie living in London, mm-hmm. mentioned City Mapper as one of his favorites as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a fantastic app with a great user experience and a personality. That's the other thing I think is important. They have a, a unique personality that matters and that's entertaining. And I look forward. I mean, it's one of the few apps I could say I look forward to reading their updates. Like their updates are written really well and they're very amusing and entertaining. Um, you know, other apps. I think it would get. You know, it gets quite personal as to what you're trying to achieve you know it could be your payment app it could be your communication app people like whatsapp uh or iMessage or whatever it is as a platform i have a few you know standbys that i just love so i I think dropbox is invaluable i mean they're in a very challenging space now there's a lot of people coming out with competition but dropbox is still leading the way Mm -hmm. i think evernote is extremely useful multi-platform integrating with physical things like pens and Moleskin books and et cetera. I mean, Evernote's a really good, interesting multi-platform uh, uh, offering that I think is invaluable. And then there's little niche things like you know. Also, so I'll admit I'm a, a junkie of tube exits. There's an app called Tube Exits. In the if you're if you ride the tube in London, this app tells you which car to get on based on where you're getting oh, yeah. off. So why wait to walk when you're at the Exit, right? right? Totally. So walk while you're waiting for the tube. And I mean, literally, so this is a, a bizarre thing about how mobile changes your life. Now, before tube exits, if a train was there, if a tube car was there when I arrived at the platform, I was excited. I got right on. Right. Now I'm a little disappointed because <laughs> I get on at the wrong car. Right. And I know yeah. that when I get off, I'm going to be with the herd. Yeah heading towards the exit and getting all bogged down. Whereas most of the time when I arrive at the tube with tube exits, 
when I get off the tube now, yeah. due to tube exits, yeah. I walk out. There's right. nobody in front of me. <laughs> I'm going to guess you're on Virgin. Then, how do you get access to the tube? Is it, is it resident or how? Yeah, it? so tube exits is an offline app. So once you download it, it, it you just tell it where am I getting on? Where am I getting off? It tells you what car to get on. Right. That, that would be an example of uh, figuring out the context, the situation exactly. of the user, because they're going to be exactly. down in the tube. They're not going to have access. Exactly. So that so that needs to be offline. Exactly. And you know, Virgin Media. The, that's a great example as well. So. As you can see, the pervasiveness of the network keeps going. Right now, it's at the platforms. It will be in the cars, you know, and it will be in the planes. It's already on buses. You get a lot of, you know, depending on where you are on the planet, that network is going to continue to get deeper and deeper so that you, you have to intentionally avoid it as opposed to trying to seek it out. Roy, absolutely stunning stuff, talking about the mesh and, and this, the way the mobile is just a, the next node. Mm-hmm. How can anybody who would like to uh, discuss with you or contact you, follow you? What would be the sure. best ways? Sure. Uh, um, so I'm a digital native, even though I, I'm a bit of an old guy now, I would say. But, uh, you know, so you can find me on LinkedIn at Roy Vela or, or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, my name as one word <laughs> can get me almost anywhere. You know, Roy Vela at and then add whatever you want at the end, and you'll probably find me. The benefit of having a weirder name. Yeah, not, not unlike yourself, exactly. All right, well, Roy, thanks for coming on the show. Great stuff. Really enjoyed it, and I uh, look forward to staying up in touch with you and what's going on in, I don't want to almost call it the mobile world anymore, but that sort of hyper connected world. There you go, hyper connectivity. That's what it's all about. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray.
Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.